0: you've tuned in to a special edition of the Roundtable Podcast, 20 Minutes with Janet and Chris Morris. Alchemists, I'm Dave Robison. And I'm Michael R. Underwood. And you've tuned in to a special edition of the Roundtable podcast, 20 Minutes With. 20 Minutes With is an opportunity for us to
1: sit down with some extraordinary creators in order to explore their craft in the never-ending quest to level up our own skills
0: indeed level up (laughs) because that's what we're doing every single day (laughs) michael i am so deeply grateful to have you with me as my wingman on this very very special edition of 20 minutes with it is an honor and a pleasure to be back in the rtp universe (laughs) now interestingly the last i think this may be your first michael actually you're i think you are the first guest host who has transitioned into the co-host chair. This is this is a pioneering episode, man.
1: I am furthering my agenda in taking all available podcast spots across <laughs> the entire podosphere.
0: <laughs> awesome. Awesome. And I'm only too proud to help you in that evil dark agenda. Well, Michael, let me, uh, uh, th- dear friends, I, I, am, I am so full of podcast and geek squee at this moment, uh, uh, and I, I just want to lead in. Michael, allow me to introduce you and our listeners to our very special guest hosts for this episode of 20 Minutes With. I
1: wait with bated breath. <laughs> uh,
0: Joseph Campbell spent much of his life cataloging and analyzing mythologies from every culture around the world. Now, he distilled the wisdom and insight of those countless tales and sagas into one simple sentence. Follow your bliss. Now, the collective wisdom of a thousand myths rendered into a single phrase. And if you require a real-world example of what Joe Campbell meant you need look no further than our guest hosts for this episode, Janet and Chris Morris. Now, Janet's literary DNA was established by the stories read to her by her mother. Now, Mom didn't go in for the traditional children's literature of Curious George or Paddington Bear. Instead, she infused her daughter's imagination with the tales of Marlowe and Shakespeare, Homer and Euripides, Milton and Dante. Now, Given that rich, heady food, it may surprise you to learn that the first book Janet read by herself was King of the Wind by Marguerite Henry, which doubtless was a herald of her reverent passion for horses that would come later in life. Now, it should come as no surprise, however, that a few years later, she devoured every book of mythology and legend from the libraries of not just her town, but three neighboring towns as well. And her father took her to her first science fiction society meeting when she was 13. Now, as for Chris, well, Chris was all about the voice and the story. He took great delight in arranging words in various and sundry patterns, engaging the resulting effect on the adults around him. As a result, he became something of a fabulous liar, not out of any particular nefarious intent, but rather to provide people with the things they wanted to hear. Now, growing up, he had two older siblings who were, by all accounts, dismal disappointments at the piano lessons their parents had procured. So by the time the topic came up to get Chris his lessons, they just kind of assumed the music gene had skipped all of their children. As it turns out, and to the delight of music lovers everywhere, they were mistaken. Now, vocally, Chris was a baritone, which meant he was relegated to the fringes of his school's glee club, which was just fine with him. He got to explore with pitches and harmonies in the relative anonymity of a bunch of boys droning away, and he discovered a profound love of singing. Now, at 11, the guitar came into his life and stayed rooted deeply in the very core of his essence. It has been a continuous exploration for him, a voyage of discovery to this day. Now, of course, he's no longer content with mere analog versions. He crafts digital models of guitars that cannot possibly exist in the real world, creating whatever sound he needs for the songs he composes. Now, to continue the narrative, Janet and Chris met in 1966, and soon after they began their collaboration, not in fiction, but in music. They would compose songs and lyrics together, refining their combined creative mojo every step of the way. In 1976, the Christopher Morse Band made the scene, comprised of Chris and Janet and two other friends. The first album was produced by Al Cooper of Blood, Sweat, and Tears, a band, by the way, whose albums frequented My Father's Turntable uh, and featured the renowned Tower of Power horn section. Now, side note, some of you may be scratching your heads at these terms in these bands. Dear friends, ignorance is no excuse. Expand your musical horizons and feast on these marvelous sounds. Now, Chris's band got some ink in Rolling Stone and Gig Magazine, and they made the top album picks in Billboard Magazine in 1977. Now, around this time, Janet was getting frustrated. Not not at the music, but at the dearth of books to read. The literary landscape had grown barren for her, so she resolved to amend it by writing a story she wanted to read. And High Couch of Silistra was born, a book that tackled sexual roles, hardwired behaviors, and the negatives and positives of unbridled power. Now, friends, understand she wasn't writing this with any intent or even desire to be published. She knew no one and nothing about the publishing biz. She was writing this exclusively for herself and her circle of friends. Now, interestingly, part of Janet and Chris's editorial process, now this is back in 1975, mind you, was to have Chris read the first draft out loud, pioneering An editorial tradition that most writers hadn't even considered until the podcasting of audio fiction. Now, as it turns out, the Morrises are actually natural-born pioneers. Uh, uh, They penned the first true prostitute in sci-fi and fantasy. Uh, They penned the first erotic male-male kiss in fantasy in the Tempest Thales stories. In The 40-Minute War, written in the 1980s, they postulated an attack on the U.S. Capitol by Islamic extremists using a commercial jetliner. They predicted the unification of Germany in their book Medusa. And in the Kyrian Consortium, Dream Dancer books, they envisioned sponge space. And now, of course, discussions of space-time foam are fairly popular in the science set. So, there we go. All right, now, where were we? Ah! Righto. So, High Couch is being circulated among the Morris' social circle while Janet writes the sequels Golden Sword and Wind from the Abyss. One of their friends mentions they know a publishing agent but they'll have to submit a professionally typed manuscript. And that came out to 250 bucks. So it took about a year for them to come around to the idea of, yeah, sure, what the heck, why not? So the friend sent the neatly typed pages to Perry Knowlton, president of Curtis Brown Limited. Perry called her, said she was a natural storyteller, and he wanted to represent Janet and the book, and were there more. So, incidentally, Perry would remain Janet's agent until he passed away in 2007, and they continue under his son Tim's stewardship. Now, the first three books were published, and by the time the fourth in the series, The Carnelian Crown, hit the shelves, there were over four million books of the first three in print. Not bad, white white genre fiction culture of the time at every turn. Her passion for ancient cultures and history led her to write I the Sun, a biographical tale inspired by the life of Hittite king Suppiluliumas. Now that required mountains of research, but without the internet, Janet ended up hiring Calvert Watkins, professor emeritus of linguistics and classics at Harvard to guide her, offering tutorials and even, I love this, translating some tablets previously unread that dealt with sorcery. <laughs> Now, around 1979, she was invited by Robert Asprin to write a story for the newly published Thieves' World Anthology. She wrote a tale about an immortal warrior with a curse that whoever he loved was bound to spurn him, and whoever loved him was fated to die. Tempest Thales was born. That story, Vashanka's minion, appeared in the second Thieves' World Anthology, Tales from the Vulgar Unicorn. And, and, dear friends, I just have to have a podcaster squee moment here. I remember with crystal clarity stepping into a bookshop in Ann Arbor, Michigan and seeing the bright, shiny cover of that illustrious volume and feeling the blood rush to my face as I snatched it off the shelf. Those were heady times for me and foundational in my appreciation of genre fiction. Now, this led to more stories about that grim and complex warrior, stories that eventually grew beyond the scope of the Thieves' World framework. Now, eventually, Janet negotiated to have Tempest leave that foul city of sanctuary where the stories took place and continued his stories in the novels Beyond Sanctuary, Beyond the Veil, and Beyond Wizard Wall, and more, Uh, again, drawing deeply upon the ancient historical literature and history and drawing heavily on Egyptian lore to inform Tempest's narrative. So things were going well. There were multiple book contracts. There were bidding wars. Life was exciting! Until an editor, making a multi-book deal on a bar napkin, said that what she wanted in this next series of books was blood on every page. Now deciding she didn't like where the industry was going, Janet set off to do something else. And for about 20 years, in fact, Janet and Chris both explored nonfiction, focusing largely in the defense and policy arenas. Now, this led to both serving as research directors and senior fellows from 1989 to 1994 at the United States Global Strategy Council. Now, this long-term think tank led to an engagement with cultures, minds, and technologies around the world, and that experience led them to write Non-Lethality a global strategy, and to architect several non-lethal weapons programs. Their unflagging efforts have changed the face of international conflict and saved untold lives. To support and sustain those efforts, they founded M2 Technologies in 1995, a company that continues to work towards a more compassionate form of engagement. As the 21st century rolled around, fictional tales began to rise once more in their consciousness. But the face of publishing had changed. The industry was still trying to understand the impact of digital publishing, and neither Chris nor Janet cared for the deals they were being offered. Also, the tone and flavor of many of the books getting publishing attention seemed to lack sophistication and nuance. So they opened Perseid Press so they could publish the books they wanted to read. Dark, lyric, literate, and compelling. Now, among those offerings are the Heroes in Hell anthologies, an ongoing shared world anthology with titles like Dreamers in Hell, Poets in Hell, Lawyers in Hell, which is one I definitely want to read, (laughs) featuring literate, compelling, and disturbing tales written by astonishing masters of the storytelling craft. Friends, there is so much more I want to tell you, but I've got to wrap this up. So let me just end with a passage from Janet regarding advice to new writers. I tell new writers to write with passion, with clarity, with brevity, with immediacy. Find a character and listen to that character. Find a voice and let the voice take you onward. There are only a few plots. It is how you tell your story that makes it great. I ask writers to give me a synopsis of their story and to refrain from writing until the story must get out. I tell writers to take chances, not be derivative if they can help it, read in their topic area until they feel in control of all their data, then put 10% of that data in the story. What you need to know as a writer is far more than what the reader needs to know, but you do need to know it. All writers should strive for greatness from their very first line. Better to grasp for brilliance and fail than to waste time writing less than your transcendent best. Oh hell yeah. <laughs> Dear friends, please welcome to the Round Table podcast Janet and Chris Morris. Janet and Chris, thank you so very much for making the time to, to share your thoughts and insights with us this evening. We really appreciate it.
2: Dave, thank you for that stunningly detailed introduction. <laughs> uh, any egregious errors
0: there that should be corrected? No. Very good. Ah, thank uh, you so much.
2: Very
3: good. <laughs> yeah, I like the part about Janet being a senior fellow.
0: <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's get into our 20 minutes with Janet and Chris Morris and-, and Dear friends, you know I'm marking the time, but with people like this, I'm betting we're going to ignore it. (laughs) This might go a little bit long. Uh, Now... Guys, I'm I'm not going to ask you about your collaborative process uh, uh, because you have been so very eloquent in so many interviews preceding this one. And friends, I highly recommend that you do a Google search for Janet Morris interview or Chris Morris interview and read up on how they do these things. Actually, my first question is going to be kind of just a a point of detail. Uh, uh, Last September... uh, Janet, you did a Danny Swords interview, uh, and he asked the question, why do you write? And you responded, I I cannot fail to write. I can choose not to publish, which I did with only one book, but I must write. And I'm curious, what is that one book? Can you
2: tell us? Uh, Thoughts, Lament. Um, I wrote that book uh, when we lived in California. And I was a Bantam author then, and I turned it into Bantam. And they said, "Well, they really would be happy to publish it, but really, they'd like to publish it as two books. Take all the um, the thoughts parts out and make that a wisdom text, and I would write some more to the other book. Both of which had originally been Thoth's lament." And I was a very headstrong where my creative work <laughs> was concerned. I said, "No." <laughs> <laughs> my agent said, "What?" And I said, no. I said, I'll just keep it. And so I didn't publish it. I didn't try anywhere else. Um, Thoth is the Egyptian god of wisdom. And uh, Thoth's Lament was, uh, it's a very dark story. Now I think it would be a book that people would like. Uh, another writer friend of mine has the only copy. <laughs> I sent it down to him to, to keep when we were traveling a lot abroad. But To choose not to publish is a choice that many writers make at times when they feel invaded or overwhelmed and they need to recover their personal space. Uh, Writing nonfiction is kind of the opposite of writing fiction. It's the other side of your brain, and it's the other side of your person and personality because it's very exposed. Um, You're writing either from the perspective of no one, or if it's an op-ed or a policy piece, from a perspective that is absolutely balanced. And if you write an opinion piece, you can write only as yourself, but it doesn't allow you the flexibility that fiction allows you. Nonfiction is exactly what it says, non and fiction together. (laughs) So when I write fiction, I get tremendous physical benefit. Cause we both write both.
0: So. I've never
3: written anything that I didn't want to publish.
0: <laughs> and, and, and is there anything that you wanted to publish that yet remains unpublished? Nope. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. I'm, I'm going to hand off the mic to my uh, handsome co-host Mike Underwood. Mike, I know you have questions for Janet and Chris.
1: Sure. I have, I have too many questions, so I'm going to narrow it down really quick. Um, Spending such a long amount of of time in the nonfiction world and in the kind of public policy world, what do you think, for each of you, you brought back from that nonfiction writing when you moved back in a big way into writing fiction in terms of process or craft lessons you'd learned?
3: Regardless, it's storytelling. Uh, People at high levels of government with tough decisions to make on where to allocate this or that need to be told a story about where they fit in a grander scheme. And it's really fun figuring out the sorts of language they use, how to put them in that picture.
2: Writing nonfiction of the sort that we wrote, um, I thought I was a pretty big deal. We were, we could sell any number of books before we wrote them. We (laughs) couldn't make deals in bars. I went down there and the first thing we did was edit the first document that proves publicly that terrorism was state-sponsored and had translations from various other languages. And I it was written by some people whose first language wasn't English. So I did that, and then I was offered to be the editor of the Intelligence Quarterly, which is an interesting combination. Oh, my. Um, you know, being ex- external about something that's internal. But I didn't really realize how different my experience was going to be until... The gentleman whose think tank it was came in and said, I'm going over to the White House today. I want you to put everything you need to tell President Bush about non lethal weapons in a one page letter. Oh, jeez. <laughs> like, you can't do that. I was thinking of doing a 300 page book. He said, No, in a one page letter and leave room for the clothes. Um, so we did that. And what he taught us was brevity and then we became kind of masters of the grandma brief. That's just telling what they really need to know from their perspective and nothing else. Um, And it's a, a completely different type of organization and you leave out everything that is really important about fiction except the story. So you reduce, as Chris says, to the story and when you do an op-ed, that's different. You have one one idea. You swing an op-ed, a thousand-word op-ed or a 500-word op-ed around one idea, and that's all that can be in it. So these were disciplinary for us, and we learned a lot. I think we're better writers because of it.
3: At one point, we got asked to tell our boss what the follow-on to the policy of containment of communism would be. No more Russia no more parody threat. What was going to become next? And we said, well, next, we're going to have to contain barbarism. And he said, well, barbarism is going to be a tough sell. (laughs) 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 Because too many of them identify with barbarians themselves. But um, (laughs) then we, we said, well, we'll have to contain conflict. And he said, that's better. better. That
2: was better. There
3: we go. uh, And a lot of what we learned writing science fiction informed our technology recommendations. Uh, One of the postulates that we came up with from writing about living in space habitats was that the last thing you want to do is use massive amounts of kinetic force, because if you burst the integrity of the habitat, everybody dies and the game's over. So less forceful, less explosive, less kinetic means had to be developed. And we said this is exactly the sort of thing we need if we're going to be in social situations trying to keep factions away from each other or people away from areas where there are volatile uh, possibilities. Um, And it's fascinating. But again, it's a story. Sure.
2: One of the things that we did that was the most astounding to me was somebody from the Kremlin and I sat in the same room and we wrote letters back and forth at the same time showing them to one another that would be signed by our bosses why it was uh the, the topic was very heavy duty and i would write the american side and they would write the russian side and then we'd look at what each other had written and then we'd write the response so and of course we had to take them back to get them signed <laughs> but nevertheless that shows you how government works
0: a heavy editorial process going on there We'll be back with more of our conversation with Janet and Chris Morris after this brief promotional break.
4: Stillwater, West Virginia. A town as hard and unfeeling as the coal that hides deep in the mountains around it. But something else lies buried in the hills of Stillwater. Something much darker. An evil beyond time, waiting to rise and bathe the world in blood and fire. When miners unwittingly dig into its tomb, only Kyle, Stillwater's prodigal son, and paranormal investigator Maya stand between humanity and hell. Time is short, and evil runs deep in Stillwater. Written by Justin R. McCumber and published by Griffinwood Press, Stillwater is a dark journey into the heart of evil. Cain Gilmore, best-selling author of Ragnarok and The Crypt of Dracula, says, In Stillwater, Justin R. McCumber brings all the vivid Americana of Stephen King and all the creeping evil menace of Lovecraft to a claustrophobic tale of horror lurking in the deep parts of the world. And Jeremy Bishop, author of Refuge, warns, You'll want to leave the light on long after you've turned the final page of this dark thriller. Still water is available in print and ebook from all fine online retailers. The audiobook, narrated by Veronica Jagger, can be found at audible.com, Amazon, and iTunes. To learn more about the author, please go to www.justinmacumber.com as well as facebook.com forward/justin R. McCumber. Don’t Get Lost in the Dark.
0: Now let's get back to the conversation with Janet and Chris Morris can you can you cite any specific examples because uh, because obviously you've both both written uh, a wealth of fiction since emerging from that world uh, is are there any specific examples you could cite where the lessons that you learned of narrative and story in the nonfiction world applied directly to your new fiction that you were writing in this millennia?
3: Oh yeah) <laughs> <laughs> Whenever people speak in a compelling fashion, that's where a writer wants to be. And whether it's a character in your head or somebody across the table who's got an agenda that you really feel strongly about one way or the other, you've got to put into words that position and speak it. Otherwise, you won't be heard and you you see the field to influences that aren't conducive to telling a good story.
2: I think that what it added for me was when I came back to writing fiction, I still remember the first day I sat down after trying to ignore the instinct to write this book, uh, to write The Sacred Band, because The Sacred Band had always been too risky for me before because it had to start on the battlefield at Chironea in 338 B.C., August 2nd, Um, because it had to start in a real battle in a real place, In that battle in history, those 300 crack troops um, called the Sacred Band of Thieves were massacred by Alexander's forces, and none survived. But when we found their grave and exhumed everybody, it turned out that 23 pairs, 46 skeletons were missing. And so the purport of this story was what happened to those 46 guys? Why were they not buried with their brothers? So to get organized to write that and to blend myth, fantasy, and absolutely correct historical detail gave me a foot in both worlds. But when I wrote those first paragraphs, I was amazed. It had been almost 20 years since pictures came to be in my mind by looking at worlds, because that's not what nonfiction does. Nonfiction doesn't make pictures in your head. Nonfiction puts ideas in your mind. It's not the same thing. An idea is not a visual. So I loved the idea. I wanted to share it. But we got to write with feeling rather than purposefully without feeling. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's different.
0: <laughs> Fair, I would imagine. I would imagine that that actually raises an in a a parallel point that I wanted to pursue with both of you Um, there. There you know with 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 I the Sun and with the Tempest Thales uh, uh, novels there's there's this deep rich uh, uh, research into ancient 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 historical cultures historical texts uh, uh, and you and you've recommended several times that uh, for those that wish to write of those that you. Consume those those ancient texts. I have several friends who who write historical fantasy or historical fiction. I was wondering if you could give us some insights into how you take a uh, uh, a language and and the observations of people from completely radically different cultures of thousands of years ago and translate them into a contemporary sensibility.
2: Well, you do and you don't. I mean, <laughs> Sibluliumis is not politically correct in today's terms. Um, he had 46 kids that he acknowledged, three queens, made 24 of those boys kings, exiled one wife, came to the throne through assassination. Um, Hittite culture is extremely sophisticated for its day. And what we did was we read the whole Hittite law code numerous times, and everything that that guy had written. And so we uncovered him. The thing with historical fantasy or historical fiction is that you don't so much write it, is that you let it take you over. And Tempest is like that. Tempest is kind of the son of Superliliumus um, in that a lot of the the native assumptions of those two characters are the same. It's not just that they share a storm god, because a lot of people had storm gods in those days. But you have to you have to be, command the material to write the first battle in the sacred band, the um, Battle of Chironia. It's called. I had to know that battle backwards and forwards, and it has been diagrammed and taken apart and put together by tons of people. So that was just a research into direct fact, but Suphaluliumis left some snatches of first-person reportage and some third-person reportage where his son, son, Mursili and his son, Mwutali, both said, well, my grandfather did this and my father said that. So you have some things from the period. I like to find something from a historical person. And slide into their mind using what they said. And that's almost a different state that you get into when you do that. But if you don't really know the material, you can't let go enough to do that. Mm -hmm. So it's a combination. It's like surrendering to an ancient mind.
0: I'm going to turn the mic back over to, uh, to to Michael in just a second, but I just got to ask: Have either of you trod the boards? Because you're you're describing the theatrical experience uh, in in these in these in these processes you're describing.
3: No. Neither of us have ever acted in a production that I know about but I've certainly spent a lot of time on stage performing music. Certainly. And it is a direct correlation. Yeah.
2: Okay. Especially his I
3: don't know if that answers your question. Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. There's th- there's that theatrical impulse of of you know the the whole Stanislavski method of of method acting and and immersing yourself in the perspective and in the history and the narrative of a, of a of a separate being altogether and that that sounds very very similar to, to, to your process as you explore these historical texts.
3: Janet is fond of saying that she ordinarily knows about 90% more than she puts into words. It has that much familiarity with the environment.
2: But I have to admit, Dave, you're right in the greater sense, because this, when I tell people, well, you know, we're just taking down what the characters say. They just kind of look at me. Um, Because it's not. I mean, we know the difference between fiction and nonfiction. The trick is to mix them both in the right proportion to create a story for today's audience. But I don't know if you're familiar with the reboot of Heroes in Hell series. What we did was we picked up as characters um, Marlowe and Shakespeare. And Marlowe and Shakespeare have to write plays for the devil, Um, And to please the devil, that's what they're having to do in hell. And to do the first one, they have to cannibalize their other works to do it. And they're not happy campers
0: about all of this. (laughs) Well, it is hell, after all.
2: (laughs) It is hell, and it's supposed to be difficult. But it's really fun to write about the um, other writers like that, playwrights especially. And uh, I don't know, one of the things we recommend people to read is... Harold Bloom's How to Read and Why. I keep threatening, threatening to write a book called How to Write and Why. <laughs> but there is a turn. If you are lucky enough to have a character who will show up and inhabit you year after year like Tempest will do. I mean, I could not write a Tempest story for 11 months. Have to write one. He shows up and off we go. And then all the other stuff of the editorial and making sure that I know where the story is going and all of that. Comes into play in a much more normal, less numinous way. But I have written too many pieces where the character wanted to start one way, and I wanted to start another, and the character won, or we weren't doing anything. Um, you have to to let that happen. You have to let the character happen, or you've got nothing. It won't breathe. Your story won't go anywhere. Nonfiction is different. You have to entrap them logically, and perhaps inspire them, but you don't have the option. Of a character showing what it's like to be somebody. It's it's mm-hmm. totally different.
0: See, I I would love to have you guys back to, just to talk about the topic of nonfiction versus fiction and the differences of narrative in that framework. That that'll be for another time. But <laughs> let's put a pin in that. Uh, Sorry. <laughs> no, not at all. So I wanted to to dig in a little bit on music,
1: especially uh, for for Chris and Janet both what the relationship for you between your composition process and the story structure building process. And if there, if you see any correlations there or lessons that have gone back and forth uh, between the two forms in terms of structure.
0: Great question. Holy
3: crap. Great question. I would say that your protagonist is your melody. Your background is the harmonization and reharmonization of the environment they're in and until you have control familiarity an immersive continuum in motion momentum that is you really don't have a story or a song and i it, it's a thrill to go fishing for those things if you have if you've got one but not the other if you can hear your character but you're not sure where he is and what he's concerned with or what, it, what he's surrounded with. And likewise, a lot of people have a terrific sense of place and yet wind up pushing their characters around just spouting plot without um, making us care about their feelings and what they're confronted with on a personal level. So, oh, the parallels are, are... Yeah,
2: the story in the song. I mean, his song is one of the things I love so much about Chris's song, is that the melding between music and lyric is so tight. When we start with a lyric, I can help him. When we're starting with music, a lot of the times I can't start it. I can't find what it's about. He has to find what it's about. So if you knew our Leaf in the Wind is a story song, so is Searcher. Searcher is a story song we wrote after we did a spiritual training and – got through the matriculation and all those little parts uh, came together and worked. And he's got a song called a man about a horse. And it is that Um, the thing about a good musical lyric, and I don't care who writes it is it carries an entire story verbally. So it's closer to playwriting than anything else.
3: Are we getting at something? Are we, did we answer something that you asked? No, that's
1: fantastic. I oh. love I love Close, the, yeah. uh, the 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 correlation of protag to melody and background setting to harmonization that uh, that really resonates with me as a musician.
0: And where where does the antagonist fit into that that composition?
2: The antagonist is usually the natural um, state. The
0: drummer. <laughs> the drummer. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
0: Damn percussionists.
2: <laughs> In Chris's first band we had a kid that we were deprogramming from Berkeley called Vince Caliuta who grew up to be Vinnie Caliuta who's been voted drummer of the year 13 times in a row, and uh, I'm, I sit way on the backbeat, and my job, if I'm in a band, is just to hold the time, and Vince can play more notes per second than any other human alive, <laughs> and we had a wonderful time with that band, and that was the first recording that um, Vince ever did was with the Christopher Morris band. Uh, we had a great time with it. It was wonderful. But when we wrote songs, we always came in with the melody, which, and the melody will engender the story, because the melody is the story.
3: I came up as an untutored musician, and one by one, I became proficient in the roots, forms, blues, gospel. Um country Celtic derived music and began to see that there was linkage and began to put them together in interesting ways. But I realized after about 20 or 30 years in that I was lacking a foundation and I spent enormous amounts of time just listening to Bach because he maps all the different tonalities and tensions in the circle of fifths. And can give even an illiterate, that is a, a non-reading musician, a, the best sort of grounding in harmonics. Um, it's a fantastic journey, and I, I will write about it before long.
2: Listening to Bach, it's like being there with Columbus the day the discovers America. <laughs> He's doing it all for the first time. He's going places nobody. Has I guess ever what I'm been. saying.
3: I never could play jazz until I was listening to Bach enough to really find out, to free myself from templates, blues, you know, forms which are so rigid that you've heard one, you heard them all type thing. Um, We're in a phase of music now that is not unlike the vast amounts of slush that are being published and given away Mm -hmm. in fiction. Uh, So it's you have to wait longer for the good stuff to rise to the top.
2: And historically it's all – the muses came to the very early writers and sang to them. And when, as he had started Works and Days, he said, come, muse, sing to me, not of what was or is or what will be, but think of another song. And all it, the entire Iliad, all 15,000-plus lines, was sung. So that the rhythm carries knowingness, and we have in music and in writing, something that's been pulled asunder and really is best when put back together.
0: That's a marvelous affirmation for embracing the, 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 the canon of, of those old texts and the foundations from which language, music, communication, story all evolved from.
3: If you're like me, the first voice you heard reading was perhaps apparent, and then later on, as you learned to read, was your own voice, and those, that imprinting never leaves us. And it's my personal belief that music and literature all derive from breath. And that to listen to a, a fluent speaker or singer or, or an orator uh, is, a, is a wonderful musical experience, first and foremost. And actually older than our association with written texts.
2: We do that today with all of our lines in our fiction.
0: I was going to say, yeah, with your with your vocal narrations for your books, you're probably discovering that anew,
2: right? Or, and if it
3: doesn't sound right, it ain't.
2: <laughs> when he said he would, when he said he would narrate the Sacred Band, because I had tried two other narrators, um, but I was spoiled because Chris reads to me all the day's draft. And then we start to edit it. But I've heard it. And if it doesn't read and if it doesn't sing, we say, we write that line again until it does. So to have him narrating The Sacred Band, which is a a big, important book, um, full of passion and and loyalty and betrayal and love and hate and battles, nobody can do it the way he could do it. And he's so intimately involved with it.
0: So, Janet, do you think you've been imprinted by Chris's voice?
2: No question. <laughs> no question.
0: Outstanding. And, and just real quick, I know that um, The Searcher is up on your SoundCloud feed, Chris. I don't know if the other songs that you mentioned are up there. Uh it is. Is it? Okay.
3: Yeah. Actually, the most
0: popular version of Searcher is on YouTube. Okay. Friends, SoundCloud and YouTube. Hit it. Check for the surgery. There
3: are two very different versions. One is <laughs> kind of a country trucker version and the other one is, is really a fusion rock thing, which I, it's the latest. And of course, you talk to any creative, they'll tell you what they're doing now is the best they've ever.
0: So. Well, now I want to listen to both. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, we, we are way over time, but I'm going to ask one more question uh, because it's my podcast and I can if I want to. <laughs> and this is a rare opportunity. Um, Chris and Janet. Now, th- Chris, you had uh, in, in Donnie Swords interview last September, uh, you were quoted as saying, Every creative must ascend from the pit of self-doubt into the light of self-knowledge and mastery through determined focus and practice. And that spoke to me, and I know anyone, any any aspiring or young writer, uh, would that would speak to them as well. And I was wondering if you could just briefly uh, expand, both of you could expand a little bit on that and, and give our listeners uh, uh, some tips and pointers on how to make that ascension.
2: Yeah. Um, know your character. Don't type until the characters are ready to, to talk. And when he talks, take dictation. Um, <laughs> the, it's the truth. People have been around for at least 12,000 years in a post-hunter-gatherer phase where we all work together. We just discovered some new ruins in Turkey that date back 12,000 years. Um, and one of the things that we learned that made us successful as, to, as a species is to tell when somebody's lying to you. We know truth when we hear it. If you can believe the truth of the character and the truth of the story and the importance of the story, you've got to leave not only your self-doubt but you behind when you write that story. Again, you yeah. know, you talked about Stanislaw. You've got to become the story.
3: I would say that there is a creative self in all of us and to help it emerge from believing everything it's been told externally into the light of what it really is simply on its own is takes a lot of courage. I wish I could pretend to have to be that master. (laughs) My better self is in the person that sings and reads. And that's My passion, of course, but it's really the only way to remain sane when there is so much input that is just irrelevant to a a healthy growth.
2: When I'm ready to write, I have a line that's my inline, that's the line that starts the story. And for example, I just did uh, Seven Against Hell, and I didn't want to do a first person story, and the character wanted to talk in first person. And I was trying to find another story and another character <laughs> who would behave and be a third person character. But I couldn't. So when I, I fought this and fought this and fought this, and I finally gave up and let um, that first person story happen, it happened in two days and it's done. <laughs> um, but you've got to allow it to be what it is. You know, all animals communicate vocally, it, it's very old in us. This need. I mean, if it's horses, dogs, birds, you name it, um, whales in their own ranges. Every mammal certainly communicates that way. But to help somebody, I have with my anthologies, my hell anthologies. Once a year, I take 20 or 22 writers, and we write a shared volume. And I had one this last round. came in, and I started to edit the story because I knew the, the idea was good and the characters were good, and I wanted to tell this story. And so I'm line edit- editing along. First read is when I usually line edit somebody. And I'm 18 pages in, and nothing substantial's happened. And I called him up, and I said, when's the story start? <laughs> and he told me. And I said, okay, well, we're going to cut out everything before that. <laughs> He sputtered a lot. And I said, you needed to know all that stuff, but that's not your story and the reader doesn't need to know it. And so we having cut all that off, we then had the story, which started at the beginning. And um, I mean, you help them by helping them tell the difference between what's their self-consciousness and what is their story. And the two things are mutually exclusive. If you're feeling self-conscious, you can't write fiction.
0: Wow. Holy smokes. <laughs> Janet, you just blew my mind. <laughs> that's that's an inspired insight. <laughs> I don't All right, that's it. I'm calling it. We're... <laughs> the, the, the 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 clock on the wall has 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 started to invoke lightning bolts and it's it's shaking its fist at me. Clearly we are we are out of time and Oh, we could do this for so much longer. Janet and Chris Morris, thank you so very much for sharing so generously and 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 giving us so much literary gold to take away. We really appreciate it. Well,
2: thank you. We're honored to be here. A pleasure, thanks.
0: <laughs> Michael, my friend, tell me, tell me what if 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 there was one thing and I'm betting there isn't. There's got to be more than that. But what are you taking away from this this fabulous 20-ish minutes with Janet and Chris Morris?
1: Well, my notes have spilled onto a <laughs> third folded page, so I'm gonna—I want to go back and and pull out not the the drummer uh, melody thing because so we did hit that. I want to pull out the quote uh, by Janet: "If it doesn't sing, we write it again." And that process of going back into work and holding it to the highest possible standard and making sure that it communicates in that way that stories started out in the sound and the voice in orature and that then orature informs literature.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
2: I have one little tiny thing for you. Just one, Michael Bach in his day was called a third rate choir master.
0: Oh, geez. <laughs> what do they know? What, what would the contemporaries know of, of grandness? <laughs> <laughs> well, for me, it was, it was, it was, two aspects of the truth. Uh, uh, one was uh, we know truth when we hear it. Uh, uh, and and that that really spoke to me just in the context of that honesty that the writer has to have with the story. and of course related to that was the the notion that a self-conscious writer can't write anything but themselves uh, uh, and can't surrender then to the story and and working past that self-consciousness. Uh, uh, is is the key to that, and I, God, wow! I'm I'm going to be digesting that for a while. That was fabulous, dear friends. uh, uh I, I hope you've been scribbling your notes and, and jotting down as much as Michael and I have with this fabulous twenty-ish minutes with Janet and Chris Morris. Now, do keep in mind that in. Just a mere seven days. Uh, we're gonna have Janet and Chris back, and we're gonna apply this this legacy of of literature and story and voice in the workshopping of a story. And I do hope you will return uh, to join us for that. But in the meantime, that's seven days that you gotta spend, Michael, what do you think our our listeners should be doing between now and then?
1: Well, in honor of our guest hosts, I want to say, and behoove all of these listeners to feed their muse, give them music, stories, film, games, whatever it takes to light your your brain uh, a fire so that then you can burn
0: words onto pages. Holy crap, I'm writing that one down. That's going over my computer. Brilliant. <laughs> Wonderful. And I will leave you, dear friends, as I always do, with the simple truth that you find what you're looking for. So look for the awesomeness. Look for the fabulosity, the blue-label goodness. And if you look for it, you will find it. We will see you in just seven days. Until then, you guys stay cool, be frosty, be awesome, and we will talk to you soon. Bye-bye. This episode is copyright 2014 by The Roundtable Podcast and released under a Creative Commons, attribution, non-commercial, share-alike license. That means please don't sell it, but you can share it to your heart's content. You can even use portions of it in your own productions, as long as you release those productions under the same licensing terms and reference us as the source. Theme music for The Roundtable Podcast was performed by the Hepcats of Brotown, Gary Gold, David LaBroyere, Billy Nobel, and Matt O'Donnell. If you would like to be a guest writer or guest host, join in on the conversation or just learn more about us. Visit our website at www.roundtablepodcast.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundtablepodcast and on Twitter at writerspodcast and you can always email us at the table at roundtablepodcast.com thanks for listening